Hey, welcome. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 17 today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black ones on the back table. Uh, we are going to be on, in, on page 849, 849 in those black Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure everyone has a Bible, mostly so you know uh, the Word of God and you can understand what He desires for you and for your life, but also so you know I'm not making things up. So that's important too. So John 17 today, we're going to be in what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. We're going to wrap up our series on the upper room discourse today. Then we're going to have like a one-off sermon next week by our very own David Gockley. So be here for him and, and we can, yeah, we can clap for him. That's good. Yeah. So, and then we're going to have a series on stewardship in August. So there's a lot of things going on. I have a lot to talk about today and uh, I have an announcement at the end that I want to share with you guys about the next steps, the next chapter of our church. Um, so buckle in. This is a, an amazing passage and there's a lot of wonderful things here. As we've talked about, the upper room discourse are the last words of Jesus before his, bar his, excuse me, his betrayal, his death burial, and his resurrection. And these are the last things that Jesus wants his disciples to understand and know before he leaves them and goes to be with the Father. And today I want to talk about his prayer for unity. The unity of Jesus' followers is a blessing to the world. The unity of Jesus' followers is actually a blessing for the world. It's important for the world. It's necessary for the world. Even though the world doesn't understand it or always see it, it is a blessing. But here's the problem. Christians aren't very good at unity. In fact, we're very bad at unity, if we're honest. Very bad at it. But Jesus calls us to be united, and he even prays to God the Father that we would be united. So I'm going to talk about three things today. I'm going to talk about the preservation of unity, the pattern for unity, and the purpose of unity. So preservation, pattern, and purpose. So first, let's look at the preservation of unity. Look at verse 11, where Jesus, we're going to kind of dive in the middle of this prayer. Jesus is speaking, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, I and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. So Jesus is saying, I'm leaving the world. I'm headed out. I'm going to be with you, Father, again in heaven but my disciples are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that I may be one, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. God the Father preserves our unity as Jesus' followers. God the Father does it. He guards us. He preserves us. And as has been the case in John 14 through 17, Jesus is talking about going to be with the Father. 
But while he was with his disciples, he kept them and guarded them, he says. But notice, God the Father has chosen Jesus' disciples, and then he gave them to Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. That's what Jesus says, that God actually had given the disciples to Jesus, but they were God's, the Father's, in the first place. They were given to Jesus for Jesus to protect them, to guard them, to watch over them while he was with them. And so one of Jesus' purposes while he was on earth was to temporarily care for those who are called by the Father. And Jesus did this perfectly. Something about Jesus' presence meant protection of the ones God gave him. And the only one he did not keep is Judas Iscariot, the son of destruction, Jesus calls him. Now, Judas Iscariot hasn't been with the disciples and Jesus since John chapter 13. The, the Bible tells us that he actually left to go betray Jesus. And Jesus did not keep him from doing so. Why? Why did Jesus not keep Judas Iscariot from going to betray him to his death? Jesus says it so that scripture might be fulfilled. And in order that Jesus would die for our sins and the sins of the world. Jesus allows Judas to go. He doesn't keep him. He doesn't guard Judas. But he lets him go so that scripture can be fulfilled. And all the scripture that talks about Jesus' death would happen. And that he could die for your sins and mine. For all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. So in every way. Jesus perfectly carried out that purpose given to him by God the Father. But now, he's leaving. He's done everything he's supposed to do, and he's done it perfectly. He's guarded them. He's watched over them. He taught them God's word, and now he's leaving. So he asked the Father to keep the apostles who have been given to him by the Father in the first place. He's saying, you gave them. They were yours. You gave them to me. Now I give them back to you. And what does Jesus pray for them? That they would be one. Verse 11, that they may be one. It's not some weird math formula, right? Like 12 somehow plus God one equals one. It's that they would be united as one. See, the world is opposed to God. That's what we talked about often in this series is that the world, when John refers to the world, he's talking about everything that is opposed to God and everything that is opposed to God and to his word will hate those who are dedicated members of God's family. So it's important that they remain united. But also notice that Jesus doesn't ask God to take his followers out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, the devil. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, remember Peter is one of Jesus' disciples and he's writing this later to some Christians and he says this in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. God isn't always interested in changing your circumstances. 
God's not as interested in changing your circumstances as much as he's interested in guarding your heart. That's why Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Tim Keller talks about this. I don't know if you ever noticed that when Paul prays for people in his letters, he never asks God to change their circumstances. He's always concerned that they're holding on to the gospel, that they're not walking away. And Peter does the same thing here. He says, watch out, the evil one's coming. He doesn't say, get out of there, run away, head out. He says, watch out, the evil one is coming, and he wants to devour you. Resist him. And then he comforts them. How? He comforts them with the unity that they have with other brothers and sisters in Christ in suffering. See, we talked about this before. In the world, there's hatred and suffering is not avoidable if you're a follower of Jesus. I know it's not like the most, like if I'm selling you on anything about like being a follower of Jesus and you're not a follower of Jesus here, you're like, I don't think I want that suffering and hatred stuff you're talking about. But Jesus talks about it constantly that if we're in the world, we're going to be hated by the world because we're not of this world our home is somewhere else. And Jesus is praying that God's family, who will experience suffering and hatred from the world, that God will protect them from the evil one. And when suffering and hatred happens, we can take comfort in the unity that we have with other Christians experiencing the same thing. There are brothers and sisters in your corner. When you're struggling, you're going through difficulty and you're suffering and people are hating you. There's other brothers and sisters who are, go, who are in your corner. That you have other shoulders to cry on. You have hands to pick you up. You have heads that will bow in prayer with you and for you. That's how Peter comforts them. The devil's coming for you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you, resist him, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. He comforts them by reminding them of what everybody else is going through. See, only in the West do we think that we can avoid suffering. Everywhere in the world, everywhere else in the world, they know suffering's not avoidable. It's interesting, when the tsunami happened in Japan, uh, the Western world stepped up rightly and decided to send help. And a large part of that help, besides construction and cleaning and cleanup, was to send a bunch of therapists over to help the Japanese. But what happened when the therapists went over to Japan, the Japanese said, no thanks. We don't need that. And as people reflected on that, what they realized is that only in the West do people think suffering's unavoidable. So when suffering happens, we need clinical psychologists around to help us get through that suffering because we think it's unavoidable. We think it's avoidable. But in other parts of the world, they know suffering's part of life. This happens. This is our experience. There are other Christians across the world that know people are going to come for us and they're going to mow our church down. They're going to throw bombs in there. They're going to kill our priests and our pastors. They know this is part of their experience. And yet in the West, for some reason, we can't wrap our minds around it. And so what I'm telling you is, and I see this on the forefront ahead on the horizon, that persecution is coming. Soft persecution, at least initially, 
but it's coming. But take comfort in the fact that other people are experiencing it with you. You're not the first people to be hated. You're not the first people to be held back, to be discriminated against because of your beliefs. There's other Christians who go through that day in and day out. Take comfort in that. Because the unity is a blessing. You see how it's a blessing? There's other people going through it with you. So Jesus asked the Father to preserve it. When we look at Psalm 133, and maybe this is the verse, the passage Jesus had in mind. But he says, Behold, the psalmist says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil of, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, you might be reading that, you're like, I don't see how this is a good thing, like oil running down some dude's beard and dew on a mountain. But what the psalmist is trying to do, he's referring to unity as descending. Three times he talks about running down the beard, running down on the collar. The dew of Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in Israel, falls on the lowly mountain of Zion. It's this idea that unity runs downward. Like oil doesn't just stay on top of the head, but drips down to the shoulders. Like dew falls at, on the high point of Mount Hermon, but it also falls on the lowest point in Mount Zion. It's a gift. It falls downward. It's a gift and it's a reminder that unity isn't just for the people at the top. Unity is not just for the disciples Unity is not just for pastors and elders. It all is a blessing that trickles down, that falls down, that's running down, even to the lowliest of lowly. Derek Kidner says this when he talks about this passage in the Psalms. He says, in short, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived. And listen to this, a blessing far more than an achievement. Unity is a blessing from God above more than it is something that you and I can pull off ourselves. See, every kid who's ever wanted a puppy claims he or she will take care of the puppy, right? Now you go to the store, you go to the SPCA, and mom and dad, you're looking at all the dogs, and the kid's like, Mom, Dad, can I have a dog? Please, can I have a dog? I, I, I promise I'll take care of the dog. I'll wash the dog. I'll feed the dog. But every parent knows who's been duped into buying a dog because their kids want them to buy a dog knows that after one week of that kind of responsibility, who ends up taking care of the puppy? Mom and dad. See, as much as we might want unity, as much as we want to fight for it and we strive for it and we try to take care of it, we must never forget that unity between Christians, between followers of Jesus, can only happen when we rely on God to preserve it. And so that's the preservation of unity, but look at the pattern for unity that Jesus talks about starting in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What Jesus is saying is that our unity should reflect the unity of the triune God. Here, Jesus turns his attention to praying not just for the apostles, but for all who will come to believe in him through the words of the apostles. He's talking about you and me. In first century Palestine, Jesus is praying for 21st century Liberty Northeast, for 21st century Christians. And he prays for our unity as well. So he not only prays for unity between the apostles, but unity between us. And our pattern for that unity is the unity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession of Faith refers to the unity of the Godhead. It says this, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. All it's saying is that Christians believe that God is three persons, but one God. Three persons, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're one God. It's a mystery. It truly is a mystery. We should not try to explain it. We don't need to get analogies or illustrations. As soon as you start doing analogies and illustrations, unfortunately, you're on, your road, you're on the road to heresy. So get rid of like the egg analogy or the three-leaf clover analogy or the water analogy. All those analogies and illustrations all fall short. They'll all lead you into heresies. Everybody understand, do not do the analogies for the triune God. Rather, we rest in that mystery. But there are things we can know from the Bible about this triune God. And fortunately for us, it's reflected in the Bible, but also in the creeds throughout church history, as well as catechisms and things like that, that help us wrap our minds around it. And one aspect is that the three persons of the Godhead are in complete unity with one another. Each member shows love to the others, shares the same purpose, works with the others, submits to the others. They are unified. And what does Jesus do? He prays that you and I would have the same unity with other Christians that God has within himself. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, it's a unity predicated on adherence to the revelation, the father mediated to the first disciples through his son. The revelation they accepted in verse six and eight and then passed on which Jesus says, those who believe in me through their message, is analogous to the oneness Jesus enjoys with his Father, here fleshed out in the words, just as you are in me and I in you. The Father and the Son are distinguishable 
the pre-incarnate word is with God. The son prays to his father. The father commissions and sends while the son obeys, yet they are one. And similarly, the believers still distinct are to be one in purpose, in love, in action undertake with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. That's a big statement, but what's he saying? He's saying our unity with other Christians isn't based on the, com- the greatest common denominator. Right? It's not like, oh, well, they love Jesus too. We all, or we all believe in Jesus, so that's why we should be united. Instead, our unity is based on adherence to God's revealed word in the Bible. And it's a unity that reflects the same love, purpose, submission towards one another that the triune God displays within himself. So all those who claim the name of Christ and hold on to the word of God in the Bible should seek to love each other, be committed to the purpose of spreading the gospel in word and deed together, find ways to work with each other. We have to learn to submit to each other by serving each other. It's a commitment to Christ and his word. That's it. But what have you and I done? What have Christians done? We've made every little thing an opportunity to divide ourselves. In the 11th century, the church split between East and West. And it wasn't as unified as that may make it sound. But in the 11th century, there's a big split between East and West. Over one point of theology. In the 16th century, through Martin Luther's work, and the, because the Roman Catholic Church tried to kill Martin Luther, Protestantism really takes off. And we've been dividing every step of the way. We've condemned each other. We've name-called. We made false accusations toward each other. We've allowed political voices to work their way in and tell us how we should think about each other. Like, this is the craziest thing that's happening to Christians right now. We let political voices tell us how we should think about other Christians. It's insane. We should not be listening to them at all. And over the past year, throughout the pandemic, I would see post after post by so-called Christians condemning other churches and pastors. I've even heard pastors condemn each other for safety precautions for regathering churches too late or regathering too early. So let me ask you, does that reflect the love, purpose, submission that Jesus and the Father share? To name call, to make false accusations, to let politicians tell us how we should think about each other? Does that sound like how God the Father loves the Son, how the Son loves the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit loves the Son, how the Holy Spirit loves the Father, how the Holy Spirit submits to the Father, how the Son submits to the Father. Does that sound like submission and love and working and sharing the same purpose? Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen to this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul knows, Jesus knows, that unity is hard to maintain, but it's easy to destroy. I don't know if you've ever gotten a thread on your sweater, and you just had to pull on it. 
despite everyone telling you, don't pull on the thread of your sweater, you can't help yourself. And what you do is you pull the thread on the sweater and you damage the whole thing. And you might even see it happening, but you don't care because you can't help it. So you keep pulling on it, even though the damage that's going to be done is irreversible. And what happens is too many Christians see the threads on the sweater and we just can't help ourselves. And we keep pulling and we keep doing it even though we know this is going to destroy the whole thing. See, too many of us are eager to get into theological arguments without concern about speaking the truth in love. Too many of us are eager for the pastor to step on our political feet so we can whine and cry and leave the church. Too many of us are eager to avoid hard topics with Christians of other ethnicities because we might realize that we need to change. Too many of us are eager to leave their church when somebody gently comes to us and challenges us about our sin. Too many of us are eager to skip home meeting because that person will be there. And too many of us are eager to tear apart the unity, unity that Jesus has died for rather than keep it together. Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit of the spirit and the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain unity. And what are we eager to do? Break it up. And worse, we see it happening and we think we're justified in pulling the thread. We just can't help ourselves. We have to do this. Because it's up to, like, if I don't do this, God's not gonna be able to like, save his church. So God needs me to pull on this thread and destroy the whole church for the sake of my one theological argument, my one political argument, to avoid conversations or whatever it might be. And we do this because we like to make it all about us. We make it about our preferences, or we make it about our politics, or our style of music, or our Bible translation, or the programs for our kids, or lack of programs for our kids, and we make it about what we want rather than what we all need. And you know what that's called? Selfishness. It's selfish. Unity is going to take work, and it's going to mean that you won't always get your way. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with not always getting your way. And unity has to be seen. So it requires action. We need to love each other, work with each other, gather with each other, put aside our differences for the sake of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus talks about the purpose of unity. So the preservation of unity the pattern of unity, which is the Trinity. And then we have the purpose of unity, which you look in verse 21 and 23. Jesus says it twice. Gives us two clear answers of what's the purpose of unity. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that, if you have your own Bible, underline the so that, the world may believe that you sent me. Jump down to verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, underline it, circle it, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. 
See, we maintain unity. The purpose of us maintaining our unity is for the world's sake. See, when we fight with each other and we tear each other apart, Christians aren't doing the world any favors. People will say, well, why do I want to be part of your church? You guys can't even get along. Why would I want to be a Christian when all that they do is throw stones at each other? And Jesus tells us two reasons to maintain unity. First, that the world might believe that the Father sent Jesus. And if that's enough for you, if that's not enough for you, that the world may know that the Father loves us like he loves the Son. This is why Jesus was sent. If you rewind all the way back to John chapter 13, because God, so John chapter 3, God loved the world. The famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, God wants the world, all that's opposed to him, to experience his love. So he gave Jesus up on the cross for us. So that by believing in Jesus and being united to his people, we experience, you and I experience God's love, the same love he shows Jesus. Remember the oil dripping down. Remember the dew on Mount Hermon down to Mount Zion. The same love the Father pours out on the Son when we're in unity together is the same love that we experience. Jesus was torn apart so you don't have to be torn from the Father's love. And we're brought together in unity. We're held together by the Father. And we show the world that the Father loves us. And the world will see it and want to be part of it too. A recent video went viral this week when undrafted baseball player Robert Anthony Cruz got a call that he was drafted, finally drafted or picked up by the Nationals. So what he did is he ran to the store to buy two Washington National hats so he could surprise his dad at work where he's a mechanic. And Robert Anthony walks into the shop where his dad, his dad is and he hands his dad the hat. And his dad, 61 years old, his name's Ron, says, and this is from the LA Times, what happened? Ron, 61, asked before noticing the curly W on Robert Anthony's head and the matching cap in his hand, and then giving him an emotional hug. He said, oh my gosh, congratulations, son. I'm so proud of you. And the video which Cruz posted on TikTok went viral and has been viewed more than 14 million times as of Thursday. See, the love the Father and the Son shared was so extraordinary that the world couldn't look away. And Jesus tells us that when we who claim to be followers of his are united with one another in a way that reflects the pattern of love between God the Father and the Son, the world sees it, the world recognizes the love of the Father and how much he loves us, and they can't look away and they want to experience it too
So here's my challenge to you. Don't let anything tear apart what Jesus was torn apart to unite. Dr. Darwin Gray has a great way of saying it this way related to politics. Don't let an elephant or a donkey tear apart what Jesus was torn apart to unite. Don't let problems, don't let personalities, don't let status, don't let parenting styles, don't let sin, nothing. Don't let anything tear us apart. Christ was torn apart for us. Let's not destroy that work. And then commit to doing life with other Christians. See, you weren't meant to do the Christian life alone. That's a lie from the pits of hell. That I can just stay home and read my Bible, and I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You were never meant to do life alone. You can't do it alone. If our unity is supposed to be seen, we need to see you. And it's primarily on Sundays, but also at home meetings and at events. See, unity is a blessing. You need people to cry with you. You need people to pray with you. You need shoulders and you need arms to hug you and let you know that you're loved and show you the love of the Father even when you can't feel it yourself. It's also the value of becoming a member. And if you're here or you haven't becoming as much because you feel full of shame or guilt or you're struggling, I want you to know you have others in your corner. Don't toss that blessing aside. And lastly, seek to build bridges between go other gospel-believing Christians to show the love of God and the love he has for this world. And obviously we do that in the Liberty Network. It's awesome to see Jim's video. It was much better than the video that I did for the other churches. I kept getting text messages. Why my eyes were closed, that was because I was staring directly into the sun while trying to take a video. But Jim's was great. But we have other churches in our network that we work with, that we, we work to plant churches together, do international missions together. We try to be connected in that way. But we have to continue to work at building bridges with other gospel-believing Christians to show God's love for the world. Recently, I was asked to help another church in Northeast Philly through a transition by regularly preaching there after I preach here. So you were like, last week, if you were here, like, why is he wearing a suit jacket? It's because they're a little more traditional than I am, but they asked me to come after I'm here to swing over there and preach for them. And through the conversation, the church actually offered to share their building with us. And although we love and we've appreciated our time here at Klein Life, after visiting with them, we realized that we are united with them around God's word and mission to reach Northeast Philadelphia for Jesus. And our leaders and I unanimously agreed that moving there and partnering with what God was doing there already through their church was the next chapter for Liberty Northeast. So starting on Sunday, September 25th, oh, sorry, September 5th, excuse me, 25th, you'd be way too late, and it's a Saturday. <laughs> we'll begin meeting at Third Reformed Church in Northeast Philly. Here's a picture. 
That's a rendering of a sign. But that's where we'll be meeting. Our last Sunday here at Klein Life will be on August 29th. We'll move our service time to 9.30, and they're going to push theirs back to 11.15. And it's only less than two miles from here. So it's for, if you're a member, what I did is I took a lot of your addresses, addresses and put them in Google and figured out that it's slightly further for some of you, but it's the same or closer for most of you. And it's in the Parkwood section of Northeast Philadelphia. So it's about two miles away. I know there'll probably be a ton of questions, like if you need a ride or something like that, we will absolutely 100% orchestrate that and get you there. But we believe that this is the next chapter for, for Liberty Northeast in reaching Northeast Philadelphia. So feel free to talk to me, any of our leaders. Dave and Clayton are in the back. Zach's over here. Uh, you can talk to Zach. He's playing the box up front. But that's, if you have any questions, we invite that. We want to talk to you about it. But this, what we feel, is the best thing through prayer and through conversations. And the other amazing thing about this is that because of Third Reform's leadership and how kingdom-minded they are, we actually believe we're going to be able to better show Northeast Philadelphia type of unity that Jesus is talking about here in John 17. We're going to try to find ways of working with each other, caring for each other, rubbing shoulders with each other in mission. And we're doing all this because the unity of Jesus' followers is a blessing to the world. There will be complications, there will be challenges, because it's harder to build a brand for your own church when you're sharing a building with another. There's risks, there's challenges. And we weighed all that up and we said, we want to join what God is doing in this area. We want to reach people in Northeast Philadelphia for Jesus. So again, if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me. Talk to one of our leaders. But we're excited about the opportunity to do this and to move there. <laughs> so let me pray for us. Um, again, if you have any questions I said any, about anything, happy to talk to you more about it. Um, but in the meantime, let's pray and we'll continue the rest of our service. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your mercy in preserving the unity of your church. Father, we ask you to forgive us either those of us who have never given our life to you, may we do that now and be united with your people. But forgive us, those of us who are Christians who have been really bad at being united with other Christians, including myself. There's so many times, Lord, where I see, where I see the thread on the sweater and I just can't help but pull on it, even though I know it's going to hurt. And Lord, be with us as we talk about transitioning to third reformed. We thank you for them and their willingness to share that space with us. I thank you that they've even given me keys so I can use an office there already. And how kingdom-minded they are. We pray you bless them for it. But we also pray that you bless Liberty Northeast as we try to take this step forward in the next chapter for our church. Lord, for those, for those of us who are really excited, that's great. But also help us remember that sometimes... We need to be kind and generous and understanding to those who may be worried and challenged. So we pray for those people as well. Watch over us, Lord. Watch over Liberty, Nor Liberty Northeast. May we show unity here. 
May we show unity in Northeast Philadelphia, in Philadelphia at large, that the gospel is real and Jesus is alive. May we never tear apart the things that Jesus was torn apart to unite. We pray all this in his name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.